Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Thanks to half a million followers of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever on our social media channels, we're back with another popular user-generated episode of On the Wing Podcast. And uh, our very own Alex Trebek, or maybe he's our very own Aaron Rodgers. I don't know. Take your no, pick. No, Bob. Let's, let's not go down that route, please. <laughs> our our game show host uh, and director of marketing, Andrew Vavra, uh, has carefully collated, alphabetized, archived, and organized questions from all of you, our podcast listeners and Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members, on the topics of bird dog nutrition, bird dog health, and veterinary care. For today's episode of Ask the Expert. And our experts today, uh, back for his second go-round on, on the Wing podcast. I, I, I looked you up, Carl. You were on episode 20. All right. So it's it's been a couple months now. Um, Carl Gunzer, the director of sporting the Sporting Dog Group at Purina, uh, avid bird hunter, uh, bird dog owner, uh, bird dog trainer, and bird dog training champion. I didn't know that about you until I looked up your bio that you've won some uh, um, some championships with retrievers over the years. Um, Carl's got 30 years of experience with bird dogs and has been our go-to guy at Perina and a tremendous partner in conservation for the last decade. Um, and also joining us, uh, you know him as a frequent contributor to the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever Journal, Dr. Seth Bynum. He's a doctor of veterinary medicine by day and a content creator by night. <laughs> he, uh, he writes for, for Meat Eater and, of course, our publication and, and Gun Dog. And you can find him on Instagram at birddogvet. Um, at bird dog vet and you know i didn't know that you were you were a professional outdoor writer and photographer before you became a vet seth uh that, that's that's a unique transition to have a career and then go back to school and get another career how'd that work yeah i don't know that i'd call myself a pro outdoor writer i was definitely in journalism for a long time and and sort of did the outdoor stuff on the side but you know during like prior to the recession it was one of those things where all of us in the community journalism were seeing the the writing on the wall and we're like, oh man, we gotta we gotta diversify our skill set. And I just went way out in left field and and thought, hey, I'm just how about we go do veterinary medicine? And it uh, ah. expect, expected to fail, but it, it totally worked out. And now it's now I get to combine both of those uh, careers into one, you know, from time to time. So it's fun. Did you Think about that as a kid growing up that you might be a vet one day or did, I mean, what, that's, no. that's a left turn though, right? It, it's a, it's really not a very romantic story. I mean, like three, <laughs> three quarters of my graduating class were all those, like from the moment they popped out into the world, wanted to be veterinarians. And I was the one that was like sitting around over beers, looking at bird dogs. I'm like, I guess I could be a veterinarian. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I, like I said, I predicted failure. I thought it's never going to work out. I, I, I avoided 
you know, those hard uh, sciences uh, in, in undergrad the first go around. So I was like, uh, you know, geology all the way. Rocks for jocks was what I was going to do just to get out of that. <laughs> and then I had to start back from scratch. And it just, for whatever reason, the doors kept opening and I kept walking in. So and, here we are. Uh, Carl, I mentioned that you were um, a bird dog training champion. I didn't know that. I saw a couple Canadian titles and I know you married a Canadian gal. Is there a is there a backstory there? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there was no relationship between uh, running Canadian trials and marrying a Canadian. But um, where I lived in Montana was about three hours from the Canadian border, and so uh, you know that going to run Canadian trials from Montana was like closer than going from East Texas to West Texas. You know, so um, it wasn't a big thing. And depending on the time and what was happening in the trial game, you know, it was really common for people to jump back and forth from Montana to Canada and and run you know you know there's four national championships a year you know two in canada and two in the u.s so a lot of guys like to run up to canada and compete there as well and it's it's a competitive uh competitive scene there just like the u.s i i think um you won two canadian championships if i recall correctly with with the same dog yeah and actually the owner of the dog ran the dog i was training the dog and he took the dog and ran both one was the canadian national amateur championship and one was the uh, national open championship. Okay. So, you know, it was a dog I was training, but he took him and ran him. Labradors. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. Cool. So I want to take a moment and thank our brand new on the wing podcast sponsor, South Dakota tourism and South Dakota game fish and parks. Make a memory this season in the world's greatest place to hunt pheasants. South Dakota. Get your license and plan your adventure at huntthegreatestsd.com. All right, um, Andrew, we got, uh, we actually got um, overwhelmed with questions for this particular episode. Um, where do you want to start today? We got, we got thing, we got questions about dog food, training, health, surgery. What's what's the money first question? Well, uh, first I'll point off that a lot of these have been edited uh, for for clarity and and length. Um, so I tried to combine a lot of questions that uh, had common themes. So if people don't hear their exact question, chances are it's it's uh, being addressed in in another one. Um, but I will say we have a lot of smart listeners, a lot of really engaged uh, people on our social channels, and uh, yeah, the. The list was long, so this should be a, a fun and, and good episode for, for everyone. But uh, knowing that this is an episode by the people for the people, uh, let's just jump into uh, a feeding and, and food in general. Uh, so this first question can be, uh, is it a bad idea to feed your dog before hunt, even if it is two, three, or even four hours in advance? And I believe what this gentleman was getting at was the possibility of bloat. You mean to jump on that, Carl? Yeah, yeah. start, and I'll, I'll add maybe. Yeah, you, you do the color commentary. Um, I think there is uh, some scientific support for that concept. So, and, and not always necessary or related to bloat per se, but for other reasons that you might notice in the field. So I would say if you're looking at that like three to four hour window prior to a hunt and the food is modest, I think like in terms of volume, so, you know, a cup, two cups, you're probably not going to notice any significant 
reaction in the field or your risk for bloat is going to be next to nil. I think as you get closer to that pre-hunt window, yes, there's a risk of bloat, what we call gastric dilatation and bovulus, GDV, so stomach twisting, basically. That that can be higher because you've got this mass of something, you know, in, in the stomach itself or in the in the small intestine at that time. Kind of just imagine it like swinging back and forth <laughs> and, uh, you know, occasionally it can just like twist over on itself and cause a problem. Um, I think what most, that's a risk, but put yourself in a high risk category if you're one of those like real deep chested breeds. So this more commonly happens in our giant breeds, which the bird dogs don't really fall in that spectrum. But if you've got like, a, you know, big, a big Bracco, Spinoni, you've got like a big deep chested wire hair. Those are dogs I think would be more on the risk, the high risk spectrum for this kind of issue. Um, but I think the vast majority of bird dog owners, what they're going to notice is that when you put that kind of volume of, uh, of food in the, in the intestinal tract in a dog, the body's now got to switch resources to digest it. So blood is important there. That's how the nutrients are going to get absorbed, taken back into the liver and then metabolized and the things that it can, you know, it can utilize for energy. But that's like a big resource suck. So, you know, we're, we're streaming this sort of with, with each other here over bandwidth. Think about like a big chunk of your bandwidth being eaten up by digestion when you're really trying to use that blood to provide oxygen to tissues so you can perform at a high level. So yeah. I think the risk really is you, you, you sort of turn the volume down on a dog you want to hunt hard because he's having to use some of his, his energy more or less a simplistic explanation there to digest food. So I'd say I'm more inclined to fast my dogs and then hunt and then feed after. Um, that's, that's sort of, that's sort of my take on it. Now my dogs would protest, <laughs> like you, you would not be able to stand the whining if I withheld breakfast after, you know, on a multi-day hunt or something like that. So I'm going to slip them a little bit, just enough to get them satisfied, get the, get the blood sugar kind of regulated. And then we're going to go hunt and eat afterwards. That was a, that was kind of a long answer to the question, but um, I think it covered all the bases. I like the uh, bandwidth analogy, and so that brings up an, another question when it comes to digestion periods of dogs in general. What are your thoughts on midday pick-me-up snacks? Like, do those even have an effect? Are those even worth you know giving? Like sneaking your dog a, a few snacks when you're on on your lunch break, or does that pose other risks too? I well, think if oh go ahead Carl please yeah I was uh, I was going to build maybe a little bit on your commentary a minute ago and and uh, and this I can move right into that question so I think sometimes people forget um, kind of the goal of feeding you know it is getting that energy into um, the muscle and having it be usable and if someone's feeding their dog and then running you know working the dog a couple hours after they've fed it. Um, that food isn't fully digested. It hasn't been utilized. It hasn't broke everything down into its amino acids and fats and so forth to be utilized by the dog. So really it's not helping the dog for that day. And, and Seth, you might have a better number. I don't know exactly how long it takes for food to go through a complete through a dog's digestive system and, and be fully uptake. But I, I think it's pushing 24 hours, not a couple hours, you know? So um, I think most of the time adding that weight, in the morning doesn't really benefit the dog and really only slows it down where if you can feed them enough at the end of the day so that it's you know digested 
for the next day's use is a much better strategy. Um, and I also always think about um, marathon runners, you know, if somebody's going to go run a marathon, um, you know, they're not going to eat a big breakfast before they run their marathon. They're going to have um, eaten well and have their body prepared to run, but it's not going to have food in the stomach or digestive system. And it's a little bit the same way I think of that midday snack. You know, it's one thing for us as a hunter to stop and eat a sandwich. We're not running. You know, we're not out there running a marathon. Marathon runners don't stop in the middle of the day and eat a snack halfway through their 20 whatever miles. The dog is more like running a marathon. They're not, um, you know, we're walking, they're running, performing. So I don't think their body has the time. And, and if you were to stop and eat a sandwich and then continue hunting really hard, um, I know a few times I've done it. It's kind of like, man, I wish I didn't just, you know, <laughs> eat that whole sandwich. Now we've got other issues. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, I think it's the same for the dogs. You know, they, they're working hard. So um, that was a little bit my take on the, the feeding before work. Yeah, we did have a lot of questions about bloat, twisted stomach. And, you know, we, Seth, you did a real nice job talking about the pre, um, pre eating or eating before a hunt. What about um, feeding after a hunt? How much of a window or should there be a window of time before a dog? So, so a dog can calm down before you feed a meal after a day of hunting. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, and I got a lot when we were at uh, the, you know, Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, which I, I think I refer to as the last good thing that happened in 2020. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, we had a lot, of, a lot of questions about that. And I think you really have to just take whatever you're most comfortable with or you're your, your, your comfort with risks. I will say that the science behind sporting dog nutrition, which is done, you know, at the, the highest level. So looking at sled dogs say that dogs really take the most advantage of post hunt nutrition. If you feed them like in the immediately after they're done. So like while they you know, hmm. quote, while the engine is still warm, that hmm. is really when they're able to take full advantage of all the nutrients store the excess, which will be at that time in excess as glycogen in preparation for the next hunt. And you're going to get the most bang for your buck per se. And they can tolerate quite a large volume of food at that time. Um, that said, you know, for those deep chested dogs, if you've had, you know, we don't really understand the full uh, process of, of bloat and, and, and torsion. We, we, it's some, there's got to be some of a genetic component in there as well. But for those dogs, you know, sort of maybe you don't want to just bombard their gut with like a four or five cup uh, meal after a hunt like that. You might want to wait or do it in little stages and allow them to kind of take it up. But I think if you look at strictly on the science, you're going to take the most advantage of the nutrition and the food doing it like right after, like, like go hunt, let them kind of like do a cool down phase, put them in the crate and feed them and let them, hmm. and then just that's where they're at for the rest of the evening. So yeah, if, if, and I talk about that in the sense that like, if you're doing like this five or six day outing, like in South Dakota, where your dogs are pushing hard every day, you really, your job then is not so much to like gain muscle. You're trying to prevent muscle loss or fat loss to an extreme. Cause as you've seen all these, these bird dogs drop weight so quickly. So that's that's a strategy you can use to like keep the keep the weight on them and keep their energy up um, when they're burning this insane number of calories. You know, um, Seth, you did uh, 
you mentioned cool down. I think that's the one thing different people may have different ideas of, of cool down, right? So, I mean, literally the second they stop running, you probably don't want to feed them while they still have an elevated heart rate and sure. respiratory rate and all that stuff. So just, I think it's smart to let the dog get back to kind of a normal resting rate, but then fairly shortly after the exercise, but not, uh, not while they're still um, panting or potentially stressed. And a lot of time at that point, they want to drink a lot of water. Yeah. So. Well, uh, let, let's stick with the, the food angle. Let's go to some uh, questions that focus on dietary adjustments specifically. So when you're looking to switch from puppy to adult food, uh, is this all based on just a general age or are there actual physical indicators that you should be looking for when, when switching the type of of feed you're giving your dog. I'm going to give this one to Carl. I have an opinion <laughs> on it. He's the one that, <laughs> from Purina. Go for it. Well, I'm not a veterinarian, but I did stay at a, a Holiday Inn Express last <laughs> night. So, no. um, so it gets, uh, you know, there. Are, it's important to feed the right food for the right life stage of a dog. And so there are a lot of different um formulas based on different life stages and some foods are formulated for all life stages like pro plan sport performance so you can feed that product to you know everything from a, a puppy to a grown adult um, it's formulated for large breed growth um, even senior dogs so there's a product that um, i know many a dog and a few that i've owned have that's been the first bite of kibble they ate and you know 14 years later that was the last bite of kibble they ate now um, particularly with senior diets, I would say now there's some better options out there and I don't want to get into the weeds with bright minds and, you know, medium change glycerides and all that kind of stuff. Cause frankly, I don't understand it all, but there's probably better options than that. Um, I think the, the main thing and, and Seth, I will let you take over, but it's looking at the growth of the dog and managing the growth so that the dog isn't growing too quickly. Um, there's no benefit to a fat puppy or a fat growing dog. Um, generally they should be on a a growth formula a little while after they're done growing so let's say it's a labrador they've mostly done most of their growing by a year old they're still filling out a little bit i wouldn't have any problem transitioning a labrador which i'm most familiar with to an adult formula you know shortly after a year old um, i think with some giant breeds that grow longer you may want to wait longer um, but by the same token I wouldn't have a problem leaving a Labrador that's active and working on a puppy formula for its whole life. As long as it's getting the right nutrition, um, you know, a, an adult dog can eat a puppy formula. There's no harm in that. So, um, um, I would say, you know, I don't, I don't remember where the, the question began there, but I think, you know, the one thing I'd stress and is keeping a dog a healthy weight, not letting them grow too fast. Um, that's the one thing, especially with these big boned or large breed dogs, Labradors, you don't want them growing too quickly that, uh, um, they potentially have some growth issues. Yeah. We weren't too far off base on what we were going to say. So I'm glad, <laughs> glad I gave you the floor first on that one. I think, I think Carl's spot on, like I, I, you can certainly, and I'm with him in the pro plan performance thing from, from puppy through, through the end of life. I think that's a really great strategy and those foods are really designed from the bottom up to do that. 
uh, as, as other foods are as well. And it, the bag will say, as, as you purchase it, regardless of what you feed, look on the back and say, you know, sort of designed for all life stages. That'll give you be, that'd be your cue that this is okay to give in puppies. It's formulated for that stage, even if you're going to be in reproduction. So that's a large part of my practice is canine reproduction. So pregnant and lactating, that does enough calories and nutrients there to handle that stage of life, which is very energy intensive, and then on through the senior years as well. I would say the mitigating growth and the speed of growth is uh, the puppy foods help with that because we've kind of proven ourselves incapable of, of regulating, <laughs> regulating and not, not ourselves in terms of veterinarians, but in terms of dog owners. Like how many times have you heard somebody get their, their new lab puppy or some large breed, sporting breed, and they're like, like look at the feet on this one. It's going to be like massive. <laughs> and it, it seems to be, everybody says that. It doesn't matter what, like, it's like a cocker and they have like the little the feet on it are big and proportional. <laughs> the mitts on that one. Um, we really want to slow that down because there is this sort of badge of pride and like cranking out this, 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 this monster puppy that just loves to eat everything and grows so rapidly. Um, you, if you can just tone that down, I think you're going to be, that's going to benefit you and your dog going forward for a long way. The puppy diets definitely help do that. Um, yeah, especially in terms of those micronutrients that are laying down the scaffolding of these big long bones and things like that. That's that's really important there. But I my tune has changed a little bit as well. I used to be a pro plan, uh, you know, sport performance, you know, from you know cradle to grave, more or less kind of like concept. I have kind of changed my tune a little, such that in senior dogs, I'm 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 kind of looking to tone down the intensity of the the calories protein and fat because i'm having a hard time with, especially with the dog now that have that's 12 and a half and has some other underlying health issues like i can't keep good good weight i, I can't keep them at an appropriate weight on these high intensity foods so like this time of year when i so i have this this other side of me we didn't talk about is this this hopeless turkey hunting addict in the spring so my dogs get this this time of year they're a little neglected in terms of the intensity of exercise they get. So the old guy will, he'll pork up on the um, on the performance. So I have to mm. dial him down to something a little less calorie intense as he's aging. Cause if I feed him the number of cups of food that he needs to maintain a healthy body condition, he's looking at me like, like seriously, that's all you're putting in the bowl right now. And I'm like, sorry, that's all you need. Like, <laughs> if only someone in my life would step in and do that same sort of thing, I'd probably be a lot healthier. But uh, so I, I'm going to give him a food that's got fewer calories so I can add a little bit more to the bowl and help him maintain the condition without, you know, putting on weight. That's another long answer. But yes, it's, it's, uh, I'm open to like changing my thoughts on those things, but I know that there are foods out there where you can do it the whole way through. And I've done that for years and it's been fine, but now I'm, adjusting that just a little bit. Yep. I, I agree. And that's sort of what I was referring to before. I think, uh, yeah. you know, the senior foods weren't out there years ago, or, or I guess they were, but I wasn't using them and, and a little bit to the same with the large breed puppies. You know, I, um, I had done a lot that were just on pro plan, but there is a value in like large breed puppy for those fast growing yeah. dogs. And like you said, it's hard for people to, to dial back the, the food scoop when the dog is sitting there looking at them like, you know, Hey, I'm hungry. Feed me. <laughs> do either of you guys transition to a, a higher protein food during the season or let's just say you have a dog in its prime and you generally feed them you know, Karina pro plan that has that 30 20 split um are you just varying the amounts you give or do you guys ever 
like switch to a different formula during the hunting season specifically? Yeah, I definitely use the performance 30-20 in the season. I mean, that's just the amount of energy and performance you get out of a, like a smaller volume is is incredible. I mean, and that's the reason why I said in this older guy, I'm having a hard time with him putting on weight in the off season with that same food because it's there's so much packed in each cup of food there. But no, it's um, yeah, it's it's hard to beat those performance foods for the for when they're working hard during the season. My the female I have now, I mean, she's a you have to really push the calories to her hard or she's going to become a, a sack of bones working the way she does. And she gets to eat, you know, as much as really as much as she wants. And this food is like the only one I've had her on that I feel like allows her to maintain a decent body condition in the peak of the season. You know, um, Andrew, I, I'm, I'm not sure if this is where you're going with that question, but I'll, I'll mention it because I think it's important for people to understand, you know, it used to be real common for people to feed sort of a, a high protein, high fat food during the season. And then as soon as the season is over, it's like, okay, hey, it's spring, summer's coming, I'm doing, I'm going turkey hunting. I'm going to switch to, you know, um, instead of a 30-20, a 26-16 or a different uh, formula. And and that's okay. Um, I generally didn't do it just because I pretty much trained year round, right? There wasn't really an off season. And if it was, the off season was so short that there was no advantage to switching foods. By the time you've changed, you're changing back. Um, the important thing, if somebody really is just going to, uh, their dog is not very active. They're going to work it hard for hunting season. You can switch, but it takes like a month to two months, I think six to eight weeks before a body really can, before the dog can really fully utilize the, uh, the higher protein and fat formula. So if you want to switch to something lower protein and fat in the off season, really you should be switching back to uh, a performance diet about two months before the season and beginning your conditioning process. And maybe the easiest way I can explain that is, you know, people, we now get on uh, what all these different keto diets and, uh, you know, lose weight on, on uh, Atkins diet, keto diets. Well, let's say you start a, uh, a keto diet tomorrow. And so you eat a steak and cheese and a uh, milk your body isn't in ketosis yet. You know what I mean? Like it takes days of eating that type of diet before your body goes, Hey, I'm not going to be getting all these carbohydrates. I got to change how I'm processing all these foods so I can use them. What's well, the same with the dog? You know, you don't get that benefit of a high protein, high fat diet. The day you change it, it that dog has to be on it before it starts utilizing the different protein and fat sources to the best of its ability. Yeah. I think that's so you, you Go, go ahead. No, go for it. I'm sorry. You're the expert here, Seth. No, I was just saying that I think that's a great clarification for Carl to make there too. I mean, I, I think a lot of that same research is is really pointing to these these performance foods as, pri like, quote, priming the body for work. Like you need to have those in place. And that's kind of why I traditionally fed them year round, even though the caloric need wasn't there in the past, um, all but for my most senior dogs, is that they're it, you just that amount of, of lean muscle and the way those foods are designed is, is just sort of like getting them set up for to hit the ground running when the when the opener comes or your training season or, or whatever. It does take time for the, the body to switch over and have that transition metabolically. No, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, to 
to get into the weeds with prenup pro plan real quick, and then I, I promise our audience will we'll move on. Um, we had a really good question that I was curious of, and this is uh, for Carl specifically. Um, can you explain the sources of the ingredients for prenup pro plan and, and why they change based on commodity prices? Or if they don't change, I would love to, I'd love to hear that too. Carl, yeah. Do you have anything to, to say for that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Really interesting. Um, the thought process there and, and I understand why people would think that, but honestly, you know, the, the way it goes is the diets are designed, you know, based on the nutrients and the needs and the testing. And then we figure out what ingredients make up the diet and those ingredients don't change once the diet is formulated. So the percentages of, of different, whether it's, um, you know, meat or, um, byproducts or corn or whatever the different ingredients are, those don't alter or we don't get, don't purchase different sources throughout the year. So um, basically for supply chain, you know, contracts, you know, suppliers are interviewed, vetted, they go through a really thorough screening process <clears throat> to make sure everything in their supply chain is good. So the, the paperwork that they have to fill out as a supplier is, is incredible really. Um, and it goes back to where they're sourcing um, just based on sustainability issues. So, um, that really doesn't change. So there wouldn't be, you know, right now, uh, commodity prices are going crazy as you guys probably know. And, uh, but what we're sourcing and utilizing in the diets is not changing and they, and they've all been contracted, you know, it, for years, not, uh, not bought kind of on a case by case basis. Um, you know, the only thing I'd say, and I know, um, Bob had asked me last week about some of the different formulas and what ProPlan was changing. And so there has been um, kind of a new, we've been transitioning. I mean, ProPlan, you know, our slogan is always advancing. We're always trying to make ProPlan better. You know, I think it's a great food, but, you know, you don't stop with today's science. You know, you keep exploring, trying to make things better, um, just like we we're talking about with some of the senior diets. So um, we have found that probiotics really help the immune system in dogs. So that's probably, I guess, the new frontier in research in both human and animal health. So as we learn more about probiotics, we can utilize those in the diets to make a better diet. Um, it actually will increase digestibility, having good probiotics. Um, so we've started formulating all of the ProPlan products. Well, not all. We've started formulating some of the ProPlan products with probiotics. Unfortunately, we can't source enough probiotics right now to have them in all of our formulas. So that's why people are seeing, you know, there's, there's the sport chicken and rice, which has been sort of the stalwart of our performance brand. Um, that doesn't have probiotics. Some of the other formulas like the puppy formulas and others do have probiotics. As soon as we can source enough to put them in the entire line, I'm sure we'll be there, but uh, that's sort of been the big change this year. Um, and what's sort of happening with the diets. Uh, it's, a, it's a great clarifier. Um, you know, if we can kind of transition maybe to, to supplemental uh, nutrition, do you guys believe in glucosamine supplements? Um, I want to also circle back to the midday snack concept. Is, is there any is there any value there, or basically, what else can people be doing for their dogs who are going on these prolonged hunting trips um, just to help with recovery and energy in general? 
Would you uh, forgive me kind of returning to the probiotic uh, topic to sort of like help answer that that question? I didn't want to leave that <laughs> stone unturned there. This thing is a lot more to discuss in the probiotic realm. So um, and, and I'll get into the sort of the midday snack concept as well. So I rely heavily on probiotics for me as like a sporting dog guy, you know, as a avid upland hunter in, in the fall and then also just in the clinic. So I, I think there is there's strong evidence to support their use. I, I would also caution people that things like yogurt also contain probiotic, but I, there's probiotics, multiple forms of, of bacteria there. We don't really have any hard research in veterinary medicine and veterinarians like hard research to prove that what we, you know, what things that claim to do are actually going to do them. Um, we don't know if the, the highly acidic stomach environment of the dog can, you know, just immediately negates any sort of uh, naturally occurring bacteria, say that maybe live culture stuff like in yogurt. So I get that a lot. Like, well, I give my dog yogurt. I'm like, well, we don't really have any proof that that's making it beyond just the stomach acid to get to the colon where really it's going to do most of its work. So I, I prescribe a lot of uh, uh, Purina's Fortiflora. I feel like that's the staple of my sort of like stressed travel dog uh, diet. So, uh, you know, sport, everybody's getting a tablet or a packet of Fortiflora every night uh, while we're traveling. And that is just really keeping, you know, you think, why are these dogs stressed? They're getting to go hunting every day. It's supposed to be like the best, the best time of their lives. There's a lot of stress to the process of being kenneled. There's stress if like a, if their brace mates out in the field, that sort of thing. And they're having to watch from the, <laughs> watch from the kennel. So that, that type of stress is going on too. So in, anything that in the dog's world that's stressful can disrupt the balance of good and bad bacteria in their colon. So I, I definitely hit them all with Fortiflora and it's made a huge difference in how they, how they survive that multiple day thing in the clinic, you know, it's, um, dogs that are on antibiotics for some, some reason, health, health reason. I always have them supplement with that to keep their gut bacteria stable while we're trying to kill bacteria elsewhere, that sort of thing. So that's, that's a big part of my, of my protocol. Um, I, I kind of get teased about it a lot because I <laughs> in the clinic from the technicians, I'm like, oh, the, Dr. Bynum sending out more Fortiflora, and I'm like, well, they you know they do really really well on it. So I'm a I'm a big I'm a big convert and, and use that quite a bit. Um, in Montana, this last opener for the prairie grouse uh, season, we had a couple dogs start to break and get loose with diarrhea on that. We had 20 short hairs out there on the on the prairie, so that was you can imagine the mess of if 10 of those dogs are starting to have diarrhea in the kennel. Um, so the, the Fortiflora, we just got them all on that, and it just it just dialed it right back in there too. So. Uh, also in puppies as well, I, that's a big part because I said I do a lot of reproduction work. So puppies who are trying to get a head start in life, they're mixed into their first little wet gruel when they're weaned, it's going to be some Fortiflora as well. So we want them to make really robust immune responses to their first vaccinations against Parvo. Um, and that that's also why I use it there. Do you anything want to add to that before I go into like the midday snack bit cough, like I beat that one to death. But. <laughs> no, I, I have a quick story though. And I, to just to pile onto that, but um, you know, I used to, when I was traveling from, from Montana to Texas for the winter, we would take around 30 dogs and it was a 2000 mile trip and we would generally do it in three days. So it's a pretty heavy, you know, travel. It's a, it's uh, you know, and, and you're going from uh, typically, you know, you leave Texas and it may be in the, you know, the eighties and you get to Montana, it's in the thirties or vice versa, probably even worse. And when you do that with a group of 30 dogs and, you know, some dogs travel better than others, 
invariably um, dogs get sick and they're stressed and they have diarrhea. And for years, that was just, you, you kind of dreaded this three day mess of 30 dogs traveling. And, and this is before I worked for Purina. Once Fortiflora came out and I tried it, I started dosing all the dogs with Fortiflora like the day or two days before the trip. And I would keep them on Fortiflora for that trip. And I went from probably nearly half of the dogs getting some sort of upset, maybe not, you know, diarrhea in their crates, but you know, a lot, you know, you stop and you air every four to six hours and you know, you see dogs starting to get diarrhea and stressed. And I went from probably half the dogs having intestinal upset to like almost zero. It was mind boggling the difference it made. So I, that became, I was a huge believer in it before I ever worked for the company. So um, that's kind of my four to floor story. And I'll just throw on the, the calming care for a dog that's maybe retired. I'm thinking about my trammel. 14 years old. She's been on calming care for, for 13 or for the, since she was 13. And she, she developed into the, uh, stay off my lawn, like grandma sort of <laughs> mentality when I, when I started adding younger dogs and got her on the calming care after I went to a Purina, um, basically a multi-day session listening to to Carl and all the veterinarians at Prina talk about the connection between a healthy gut and a and a healthy mind. And it's been it's been noticeably uh positive to put that calming care packet of probiotic on Trammel's dog food once a night and have her she's still the angry old grandma saying, get off my lawn. <laughs> but it's it's much more calm, you know, more much more manageable for a dog that was kind of developing into like, gosh, just didn't get along with the younger pups. And now it's just there's harmony in the household. Now, they know not to get on the same couch as her, but by and large, it's a pretty much a pretty happier home. And that's it, it, it relates back to the Purina connection between having all those veterinarians on staff doing the research of connecting the probiotic benefits in the dog food. I mean, this isn't, hey, let's try a little something here. There's a lot of research that goes into that. Yeah, a lot of that points back to their you know, their Swiss roots with, with, with Nestle and the factories that are, that are sort of, you know, creating these, these, you know, proprietary strains of, of bacteria. It sounds all really, I don't know, fascinating and stinky at the same time. I, I, <laughs> I can't imagine, but no, I think we're just scratching the surface in terms of what we can do uh, in terms of the colon being a link to the, the brain, the release of dopamine, like you're experiencing in some small form there too. And your, your results are pretty typical. Like it's not a, it's not a game changer, but it's like this takes the edge off and makes them, uh, you know, a little bit different, maybe a little more tolerant where they might have gone to, it might have came to blows. Now it's just like, I'll just do whatever kind of thing, you know, yeah. uh, just subtle differences. But I think we're, you know, in terms of even human medicine, the, there's a lot going to come out in the, you know, in, in the next decade or so that's going to just going to point to the, the colon of all, of all organs as a powerful <laughs> thing to release uh you know, uh, moods, moods. Well, I mean, things. just think about all of us. If you have an upset stomach, you're in a bad mood, right? Yeah. What yeah. you, you are what you eat. I mean, yeah. that that's as simple as you could say it. 
the whole Snickers commercial of getting hangry. You know what I mean? Your stomach. Yeah. yeah. You're hungry. You're angry. Yeah. So. I didn't want to leave the uh, the midday snack thing unaddressed. I think that um, as long as you're strategic about it, I think it's there's really no harm. Um, I don't want you to do anything that's going to have to have, as I mentioned earlier, the dog divert for a normal healthy dog. We're sort of a a fat rich uh, source could be could be helpful or energy from its tissues uh, to like digest food, but there could be in some situations. Um, uh, during that time to provide a little, a little boost. Um, also just something that's also, you know, like glucose rich to give them a little bit of a boost as well too. But I'd say do everything really in moderation there. And, uh, you know, I, I I'm like the next guy, if I'm having a bite of apple or like a, a sandwich or something like that, I'm going to, I'm going to toss them something, you know, like I always say, they just look at you with that look like, thanks, man. I really, really needed that. And, <laughs> you know, it's, to me, that's worth it there with whatever risk aside, you know, I'm willing to take that on. The, the other part of Andrew's question was about glucosamine chondroitin oh, supplements. Yeah. Um, and I've got firsthand experience in there, but I'm not a veterinarian. So we'll let the veterinarian answer it. <laughs> sure. Again, it's like one of those things where what does the science say versus what's the anecdotal response uh, to, to that? And I think for glucosamine, the, the research is actually fairly strong that there's a benefit there. But think about it in terms of, uh, uh, you know, what you're trying to do. So the glucosamine, you were really helping with uh, rebuild some of the cartilage scaffolding. You're trying to help regenerate cartilage, which is, you know, an extremely slow process because there's not a lot of blood involved. So these things take a, take a long time to, to, to happen. It's, is a so like slow onset, like a heavy loading dose for a long period of time. And then sort of this subtle improvement over time. It's not going to be like taking a, you know, a couple really stout, you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for that kind of pain. You're looking to like sort of do it in the supplement. That's why it's why it's a supplement. So the glucosamine, I think strong evidence to support its use. Make sure you're giving enough. Sometimes these little treats that you buy are not going to have enough where like you probably have to give the dog 20 or 25 treats um, hmm. in order to get the appropriate amount. And I would say consult with your veterinarian on, on the amount that you need there. Um, but also keep in mind, if you're doing a treat-based glucosamine, mm. the vast majority, and I'm, I'm kind of getting outside of our, our hunting dog world here, the vast majority of my arthritic patients that could benefit from glucosamine are already obese, like majorly obese. And so that we don't want to contribute 25 <laughs> extra treats a day to a dog that needs like 100 fewer treats a day already <laughs> uh, so, sort of thing. So that's that's the place where you're going to have to work closely with your vet. But yeah, in terms of the science, I think it's like two thumbs up. It's worth it's worth pursuing. Note that not all when you get into the supplement world, it's like under this umbrella of nutraceuticals. So there's not a lot of FDA regulation in terms of the quality ingredients, even the amounts or what the claims are on the on the jar. Mm. So really try to get the highest source that you can. It's like little subtle things like glucosamine sulfate versus uh, glucosamine hydrochloride, or I think that's the right the right bonding agent there. But th those two things make a huge difference in the bioavailability in the dog. You know how so if you're getting a lot of the wrong thing, it's just not going to do what it says, even though the the label says it's loaded with glucosamine. So a little fact checking on your part will go a long way and buying from a reputable source, I think is helpful, but yeah, try it I, out. I was coached to start, uh, kind of at six years old. 
um, to based on what you're talking about, like build it up for the elasticity of the joints. So sure. as you're not you're not just starting at a at a senior dog level. You're starting kind of in their prime. It, was that good coaching, or was that uh, selling me a little extra glucosamine? No, I, I, in fact, I think now we've actually gone even further that direction to say that dogs or at least lines of breeds or, or breeds in general that are going to be prone to arthritis later in life, you can start them as early as puppyhood now. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that the, uh, the supplement companies are probably like, you know, singing the praises of this research. Like, oh, finally, you know, we have reason to sell it from, 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 you know, from the very beginning. But I do think the research is compelling that having it on board in dogs where you know down the road they're going to be at a higher risk i'm thinking more like your your labrador would be sort of the classic um then yeah i think there's good good evidence to support starting it early in life before there's any onset of of problems hmm. or visibly anyway yeah and you know and there is uh you know besides uh the supplements there are some veterinary foods and products that are um that contain glucosamine and are sort of joint mobility formula so if people don't want to give the actual supplement they can feed a product that has it and you know there is there's glucosamine in you know all of our pro plan diets and all that but it's not in a therapeutic level so if you're really trying to do it something to really ward off a, a serious concern that's the point at which it needs to be at a higher level in a, a therapeutic form not just in the diet yeah so when it comes to other <laughs> good, bad, or inconclusive supplements. Um, as you know, an owner of two dogs who spends too much time at the local pet food store in general, uh, reading labels and things like that, something that's caught my eye are uh, CBD products. Seth, I'm curious, uh, what, what's what's your personal take on that? Is, that? is that a fad? Is there anything there? Like, I'm guessing the science is still out. Um, are people just trying to grab people's cash with you know, selling the fact that, oh, this will help your anxious dog calm down a little bit. Um, I want to put you on the spot a little bit. This one wasn't on the, <laughs> on the radar. I, yeah, I get this. I get this question a lot in the exam room. So I, I came prepared whether you, whether you knew it or not. Um, I would say that, it, well, you mentioned two things. I think CBD in terms of managing inflammation and osteoarthritis actually has a pretty impressive body of research in veterinary medicine already. You know, before we just use the human model, like, yeah, this works great in this thing. So obviously dogs are, have livers as well. So that's naturally work the same way. Of course, that, that, that rarely happens just like that. But the, the, there's been some pretty compelling research uh, that it's, it has an effect at some, at some higher doses in terms of managing the inflammation with osteoarthritis. So yes, um, I'll say that. Now, you went into anxiety, and I think that research is still uh, in its infancy in the canine, although I think anecdotally with people doing it, it has that has shown some benefit. Now, I, I, veterinarians for a long time had to kind of kind of go back and forth and use this sort of like underhanded way to get owners to suggest CBD themselves. So I because it was like the way it was, you know, managed under the under the a farm bill, I guess, as a hemp product, I couldn't officially recommend it but i i had creative ways to get them to bring it up and then i could say hmm, yeah you might want to look into that i've heard this or that but i can't i can't make a fish now that's changed i can make an official recommendation not so much well documented for anxiety but i think in terms of osteoarthritis yeah it's pretty it's pretty solid um obviously do it a place where you can get it legally and then you know here's another time to since it's still sort of in the nutraceutical category 
source it from reliable sources. There's only really two research veterinary products that I'm aware of containing CBD. Don't go to the gas station, you know, that has the big billboard out front. <laughs> One of those big inflatable things going back and forth trying to sell CBD. That's not where you're, you're going to get byproducts in that thing because it's, it's just not tested for purity the way. I mean, not you don't want to do any harm at the same time to getting levels of, of pesticides or heavy metals in there with your dog as well. So get it, get it from a reliable source. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's good advice and, and, and good to know. And I think with that, we'll transition to overall health and wait until you get this segue, Bob. Seth, why do dogs eat grass? <laughs> uh, because they can. I, that's the answer I've always given. Because they like it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> something to do. Uh, no, I mean, there's, I get that all the time from owners because they're like, why well, I, I brought, I brought my dog in today because I, I, something's wrong because they're eating grass. And I, you know, I, there's, there's some, that's a response to something. I don't think we fully understand uh, what, what the, what they're trying to accomplish through that process. Um, in fact, just the other day, there was a, a dog that, uh, this is not a sporty, that's a little chihuahua mix thing that never, never goes outside. When it's outside, it's always in a baby, baby stroller. So the, the owner noticed the dog like wandering around the house, licking the, the baseboards. And I was like, well, I bet you if this dog was outside, it would be eating grass as the same, trying to satisfy the same, the same urge there too. I think there's something to it when they have some sort of GI upset, they tend to gravitate towards a mouthful of grass. I don't know, you know, like evolutionarily what they're trying to accomplish. I don't think anybody does. It may be just as much behavioral as anything else. But yeah, it is because the can is sort of the short answer. Yeah, I've uh, I've got a couple of dogs that think they're part-time bovines uh, in the backyard, so that's that's good to hear. Um, in okay, in our experts' opinion, are most sporting dog injuries other than barbed wire due to genetics slash confirmation or simply lack of conditioning? I was just looking down at, oh, yeah, there, Carl was muted for a minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I would say it's a mix. Um, lack of conditioning is huge. Um, obesity, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just say this here, even though I know most, this is not going to affect the vast majority of the people listening to this podcast, but pet obesity is an epidemic. I mean, it is, it is, a, it is the single biggest disease that I treat in veterinary medicine. Um, and that is certainly associated with early onset osteoarthritis and links to, you know, sports related injuries in dogs that don't do a lot of sports, you know, like a, like a, a, a blown cruciate ligament is, is just incredibly common. Hmm. Um, and, and so I'm seeing that quite a bit. Um, yeah, it's, if you could, if you could take osteoarthritis out of the, out of the equation, um, or take obesity out of the equation, really, I, th I think that um, you'd be left with, a, you know, just your run-of-the-mill sport-related injuries, so dog versus barbed wire type stuff. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, we, we have, we're not doing a great job as a profession and getting our clients to understand the issue of obesity either. So I, you know, I tell people, like, I want you to, to have your dog be on a great food, but sometimes their best treatment is just, just less, less, less food in general. So, you know, there are some, well, I guess I'll back up and agree with Seth. You know, I, I think the leading cause of injuries are generally accidents, you know, and that's, that's kind of the avoidable and the unavoidable, you know, some is just kind of our lack of uh, 
forethought, you know, with dogs in the field and not being prepared or, or making bad choices. But, um, you know, there's stuff like the barbed wire that just happens. But there's some interesting research on um, the gen genetics and diet, you know, and they're looking more and more at the genetics for things like um, canine cruciate injuries. And there seems to be a genetic component to that. Um, and I know that there are some studies with diet that show um, protein levels affecting injuries. So um, I wish I had this available to quote it exactly, but um, basically they studied different uh, subsets of dogs so like on a 24% protein diet, a 26 or 7% protein diet and a 30% protein diet. And the number of injuries was, was dramatically different in the protein levels of the diets. And so the higher protein level diets had fewer um, muscle injuries, soft tissue injuries, that kind of stuff, the lower the protein diet, and even a 24% protein diet, which a lot of people think, oh, that's a reasonable amount of protein. Um, the subset with 24% protein had a lot more injuries than the 30% protein diet. And I, I don't know if you guys do a follow-up. I'll try and find that research or a link to it. Um, if anybody really wants to dive into that, because there is some good factual stuff that shows higher protein diets tend to have fewer you know, musculoskeletal injuries. Um, that said, you're probably as right about saying the conditioning as anything. I mean, think about, uh, as a dog goes out, you take them hunting, they're out of condition. You work them hard that first day, they get tired. They're, they're slowing down. They're not picking up their feet anymore. They're more likely to stumble and pull a muscle and all that. So I, you know, there, there was probably about five different questions and answers in that little <laughs> bit there, but, uh, <clears throat> That's about all I. That's about all yeah. I know on that one. So. I I could take it deeper in the weeds if you want to factor in what we call reproductive status in there as well, because that I think that research is is sort of interesting and we're, really we're looking at in these types of things what we call retrospective studies. So going back in time, looking at medical records, and then trying to see like what's what things were you know came together as cohorts along with the problem we're looking at. You know, that doesn't necessarily show causality, right? It just shows association. So there's a lot of factors in some of these sort of sports-related injuries. Conditioning could be one, you know, body, uh, you know, muscle condition, then body condition, another. Genetics is a huge role, what we call like epigenetics. So things that are within your DNA that get turned on and off based on other environmental factors. I mean, really, really super deep in the weeds, you know, hmm. on that kind of stuff. So I, I, like I said, I do a lot of canine reproduction. So I always tend to be the one veterinarian in the county that's advocating for some benefit to sex steroids, whereas a lot of my colleagues like to see them, see them gone, like the plague. Um, there could be some affiliation with animals, you know, early spayed and neutered uh, that could have a higher risk factor for some of these or a lower risk factor. It's still, we're still trying to figure all that out. Tease apart what just what just came along on board um, in these retrospective studies, or actually maybe have a, an explanation for why these happen. So knowing there are a lot of opinions out there, Seth, what do you, what do you recommend for uh, best age to, to spare, neuter a dog to minimize risk of health related issues? Boy, that's, I mean, that's, there's a, that's a long answer. And I really, um, if I give like the short answer for me getting out, out of having explained the long answer, I think what I tell people is it really depends on your comfort level with certain risks. So I think no matter what you choose to do, 
whether you even choose to do it like spay or neuter at all, which is certainly an option. Dogs existed for, you know, millennia <laughs> with their reproductive organs and did just fine. Um, I think that really depends on, on, on a lot of your comfort level with risks. Um, so I, traditionally, I have to give a little history, Andrew, if I'm going to like tell this whole thing. You can't just like sort of halfway say it. You got to say the whole thing. Let's, let's just put it in context from like the 30,000 foot view, right? We have in this country for sure and across the world, you know, a pet overpopulation problem. So the, the lens with which we view that as a public health crisis, and it, it, it indeed is one, there's no getting around that. We have to like do our best to, to, to limit the number of pets that are in the world for things like rabies, where there are still places in the world where, where humans die from rabies. I've had people argue that point with me, but that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty profound and definitely takes place. So that's, that's one perspective. And for, I think to manage that, we definitely went into this early spay and neuter concept. So six months across the board, males and females take away their reproductive ability. And that's a great way to not grow a pet population. If you're sterilized by the time you, before you hit puberty, you certainly aren't going to contribute to more of yourself. That's just a, that's a fact. So it works really well in that regard. I do think though that that, that doesn't, that mold doesn't always apply to every bird dog owner. So we have, we have other agendas. We're also, for the most part, and there's, a, there's, there's always exceptions to this, we're also paying very close attention to our animals. We take a high level of responsibility for what they're into and what they're doing. And they're not just roaming the neighborhood, you know, getting, getting pregnant or impregnating everything there too. So I think that for that reason, you can make a decision based on what you think is best for the dog, not what's best for public health, if that makes sense. If you want like me to like throw out a number of, a, of an age at which you should do this before I, before I get to, you know, too far in the weeds, I think if, you, if you're insistent upon having your dog spayed, you don't want to mess with that, uh, with, with the reproductive side, you don't want to mess with heat cycles, you don't want to with the mask of the, you know, run the risk of her dog getting pregnant. You've been through a, what's called a pyometra at a previous dog you had. So a, a massive uterine infection from, you know, from an, from an older reproductive tract in a female, you want to avoid that. I'd say if you could give them a minimum of one heat cycle, I just feel like that in a bird dog, a working dog, that would be super beneficial. I am in no hurry to get that thing out of there prior to, um, the, the first heat at six months of age, because there, I think for the, for the bird dog owner, I think the, the benefit and the only real benefit I could think of is not getting pregnant and or reducing the risk of these malignant mammary tumors later in life. You just, there's just negatives in my opinion. Hmm. So it now on, on the male side, um, so I didn't, I didn't give an age. So that would, that would probably correlate with, um, somewhere between a year and two years of age. If you want to get them spayed, I, my, my advice put up with the first heat cycle, even if it's a mess, even if it means putting the dog in some kind of diaper around the house to prevent blood drops around the, you know, the carpet and things like that, the dog will benefit from being allowed to reach that physical maturity and some of the benefits that come along with, with reaching puberty, hmm. you know? There's a, there's a lot of signaling that goes on. You know, the reproductive tract doesn't exist only to make babies. It really has a, it has a function, you know, endocrine wise that I think is really valuable for other body systems that we either don't fully understand in the dog or just choose to ignore for the sake of the public health reasons I mentioned earlier. Now, looking at the male, 
you, <laughs> if you're a conscientious bird dog owner, I, you'd have to really, you'd have to like really press me hard to like force you into neutering your male. I just don't feel like, I feel like every complication that arises from, from remaining intact in terms of the health reasons why, um, is pretty much handled by just castrating them, neutering them at the, at the time the problem arises. That's, um, that sounds maybe a little too laissez-faire from people. And then across, if there's any veterinarian listeners right now, they are cringing. They're like, who is this guy that's give, giving people this, this advice? And the board will be calling him very, very soon about this, this horrible advice. But no, I, I really think it's true. I mean, I think the active working males, I think the the hormones there are, are going to be crucial. Not so much about bird finding or drive or anything like that. I'm not touching on that. I'm talking about physical development and performance. Um, gosh, how many, if I could look at all the neutered hunting dogs that I work with, I mean, how many are in, in good physical condition? I mean, despite exercise and appropriate diet, you know, there, I always ask people that come in for a blown cruise shit. Like I see that he's neutered. When was that done? Mm. That kind of question, that sort of thing like that. So that's a really long answer. Um, and the, and I, you know, if we had a lot of time, I could dive into all the, in fact, I think at Pheasant Fest, I just did one presentation just on this very topic as to when to do it. It, it was like the most popular one by far. Hmm. Um, yeah. Cause I feel like, uh, you know, us bird hunters, we don't often have a voice in our community about, you know, what, when to do this. It's always someone that doesn't quite get bird dogs, you know, kind of giving you the official sort of canned answer, which is, which as I mentioned earlier is based on a really you know, a real need, um, mm -hmm. but it doesn't always, doesn't always fit us. Bob Barker. Yeah, it's the, the Bob Barker effect, if you will. Sure. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're still kind of coming out of that a little bit. So if we're to stick with mm -hmm. your, the path that you're taking us down, Seth, uh, mm -hmm. one question that's specifically related to that was, I'm a, it's my first time owning both a male and a female together. What are some signs I should be aware of to avoid some unwanted litters? My male is five, my female is five months. Hmm. Yeah, I think this is this is going to be a little soul searching on this this owner's behalf. So, just I think that he or he or she needs to know that she can get pregnant on the first heat, and he is more than uh, he's more than willing to try. So keep that in mind as well. Um, you know, signs that she's about to come into her first heat cycle. There's usually. But some kind of weird behavioral thing that people notice first, I'd say across the board. Then there's usually some very marked, uh, mar market, that's too much of a doctor word for a, for a podcast. Some, some notable, you know, vulvar swelling. So the external genitalia and the female, the thing that nobody bothers to look at if you have a setter, it's that buried in the hair back there. Um, you know, it's just, it, it'll start to swell and you'll see some, some discharge, usually just drops of blood at first. What I think they're going to notice before any of that happens is that five-year-old male being like, hello, <laughs> who, do we, who do we have here? Yeah, yeah so I'm extra, extra investigating. So you're going to have to have some very, um, very strict isolation protocols if you want her to have that heat cycle because, yeah, it's a real solid risk. And dogs, as we all know, uh, get super creative in ways if they're, if they're compelled to, like teenagers, to find, uh, to find that moment alone. Hmm. So yeah, be, be very careful. Um, you may have to even do something like, you know, board him or board her and, and note that like, if there's, there can be some complications for a male that's like subjected to that much, like, 
arousal for that period of time. I mean, that's that can cause some some you know swelling of the prostate, inflammation there that can cause some other health issues too. That's a, that's a lot for him to handle. In addition to the howling at the moon and tearing down the kennel door, that kind of stuff too. Yeah, that's yeah. I think isolation is going to be your best bet if you want her to have the have the heat. And Carl's shaking his head over there like, yeah. you ever traveled with 30 <laughs> dogs before? <laughs> yeah. And we ended up putting in, um, you know, kennels separate for females in heat once they came in. And, and it was uh, when they were in full heat, there was no way I wanted to keep them around the guys. It just disrupted everything. So, yeah. um, and as Seth said, they can be incredibly creative about breeding, finding ways to get out, dig out, chew, try and chew out. Um, so, yeah, it's isolation is the answer. I, I have a, a specific question here that I, I wanted to read. Uh, there's a full, the full length version of it because I thought it was pretty well done. Um, so here we go. I've got a one and a half year old GSP who is a machine. He has absolutely zero sense of self-preservation in the field. Luckily, he hasn't suffered any structural injuries, though he seems to gouge his eyes on every thorn slash branch out there. My question in regards to dog health, is it normal for a young dog's joints to crunch slash pop like a Rice Krispies commercial? I'm a 30-year-old washed-up athlete who's abused my body for years in contact sports, and my dog's body seems to creak, crunch, and pop as much as mine some mornings. He doesn't show any signs of pain or discomfort or stiffness and is healthy and in great shape. And I suppose for me personally, as a 35 year old washed up athlete, that one resonated with me a little bit. Yeah. So does, does this guy have anything to worry about? You'd be surprised how often people will come to me with that same kind of concern about the joint noise. And um, I've had one, one client go as far as to dump a ton of money into diagnostics, just like could not, not get to the bottom of the, the origin of this noise. I mean, uh, to me, it's it's in some spectrum of normal because they're not showing any signs of, of inflammation there. So I'd say it's like if it's a car problem, you know, you just sort of turn up the radio louder to squeak. <laughs> I'd say that's kind of the, the mentality you need to take into it. Now, if they have some concern and the dog is showing some lameness or they really, you know, don't rely on a guy on a podcast to give you this this sort of free medical advice, go talk to your veterinarian about it. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something weird there. It's a, a clunk that's causing a problem. It sounds like there's not. And it's just from the description, you know, with the, the 10,000 foot view, it's, I, I can't see that being a medical issue, but I've heard of it many times. People just wanting to like, Hey, I hear that, that noise. Now the, the reckless abandon with his body thing, I think that's just kind of typical for that age in a, in a short hair. I mean, they just, um, he said it was a short hair, right? It sounds like a short, that's yep. what I'm picturing in my mind is some crazy, <laughs> crazy short hair bouncing off. I mean, somebody spent a lot of years, trying to breed that trade into that dog. And, and now you, <laughs> it's uh, just to embrace it. So I think they'll, 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 they'll come out of that phase eventually once they realize that pacing yourself is actually the smarter way to approach a lot of that. Um, I think we've all been there with, with the younger, with younger bird dogs, but no, the cracking and popping, I think is some variation on normal for some dogs. And as long as he's not limping or showing lameness, then just, just turn the radio up louder and move on. The key phrase was, uh, that dog will come out of that phase eventually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when he's seven or eight. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Seth, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever used any of those? Um, Cause he mentioned uh, gouging his eyes and so forth. Have you ever tried any of those um, eye protective rec specs or anything like that? 
Do you have any experience I, with those? I, it, interestingly, I've got a I got a set on the mm. way to kind of demo. Um, I I feel like I have a, a subset of clients that their dogs have some sort of like traumatic eye injury and we need to protect the injured one long term or protect, you know, they say they lost the eye and they just got one good one yet. I think the technology there, if the dog, if you can really do a good job of introducing that foreign thing to their face, some dogs are going to be really tough to condition to that. I think there's definitely a benefit to them yeah. too, but um, yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of kicking the tires on a set and seeing what if it's something I want to add into my recommendation arsenal. But I think just conceptually, yeah, it's a really it's a good yeah. idea. Yeah. I think you got to kind of get over the, you know, that's <laughs> the the look. It's not that yeah. classic uh, cover of gun dog sort of appeal to it um, with the big goggles. But I think if you've got you know con, you know chronic eye injuries, like serious eye injury, I think you want to. Mm -hmm. It's probably worth the investment for sure. Yeah. Dogs don't care. No, you know, I, I've got a friend that, uh, you know, uh, another veterinarian, I think, you know, Ruth Ann, you know, Lobos sure. and, and uh, her and her husband had a dog that sort of was doing a bad deal, tearing his, himself up and what they were hunting and use, utilized some and was really pretty impressed with them. But I think it's kind of like, like what you say about, we talk about booties, you know, you, you got to not put them on the first time when you need them out in the field, you know, you better, uh, better condition the dog so they understand or can deal right. with them. Well, when it comes to other uh, product specific questions, there was a, a lot of people were curious about specific dog med kits. If either of you guys carried a specific brand or a specific kit in general. Um, but I guess I'm more curious and if you have an answer to that, that's great. But what are probably the top three items that you always carry in your vest? No. So if you're, if you're walking in the middle of nowhere, Montana, like what do you want to have on you for that? just in case something goes wrong moment. Carl's digging in there now, pull his out. It looks like, <laughs> there you go. That's that. That's item number one. Yeah. Leatherman. Carl, Carl is showing a, le a Leatherman yeah. multi-tool. Yeah. 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 I don't leave home without it. Right. That to me, that's the number one thing for, uh, in my vet kit, but Seth, I'll let you expand. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think for that, it's the, 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 uh, utility there is is endless i mean i think if you if you hunt in porcupine country which is you know what better than three quarters of the of the 50 st states uh there in the fall season you're gonna want to have that on hand i mean it's just an invaluable tool um it also does it's good for other other types of stuff as we all know kind of like the duct tape of the of the of the woods for sure cutting barbed my, wire my, you know, cutting a dog yeah. out of barbed wire or something they get hung up or Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like bending a collar or buckle on a car that's broken or fixing a crate or, or whatever. But, um, I, I think you're going to be a little underwhelmed or whoever asked this question would be underwhelmed at my vet kit, my med kit. It's, it's pretty Spartan. Um, I, cause I don't like to carry heavy stuff. So I, I do I, I hunt chuckers and I like to carry more water than, than like a, a first aid kit. That said, I mean, it's, they're all pretty straightforward. And I think what I always tell people when they're looking to put one together is only carry what in the heck you know what it is and how to use it. And if you don't know what it is, then don't, don't bother. It's not worth the wait. My, my kit really is going to contain uh, like a small bottle of some kind of saline flush. We talked like the guy with the, the dog uh, with the eyes, you know, getting those kind of irrigated out will help if there's a foreign body irrigating out a little laceration if it's really dirty. Um, and then I carry just something to wrap a major wound up. So gauze, some of that like stretchy vet wrap that comes in a variety of colors, um, and then some tape to close either end of it. You know, that's, that's, 
gosh, that's it. Now I'm probably due for a major disaster. I'm going to like carry the kitchen sink because I'm <laughs> underprepared, you know, but I feel like in general, that's all I really want with me. Now at the truck, it's kind of a different deal. I might have a lot, like, I, I tend to, I'll dive more into the the medicine side of things, which, you know, I, you can't, you can't prescribe yourself. Most people can't prescribe themselves antibiotics or pain meds, but you could, you could probably talk your veterinarian into loading up your vet kit prior to the hunting season with some some antibiotics or some, you know, carprofen, which is sort of the classic, you know, anti-inflammatory drug given to dogs. Like I, I'm, I'm fine prescribing that, like what we call prophylactically, you know, without a current immediate need for it for the most part, and just in case you get into a bind and in Montana, but usually something to immediately address and sort of sterilize a wound is all I want because if it's bad enough to warrant a vet to fix it, then, I'm, then doing it in the field is a disservice and potentially dangerous to the dog. And then just keep them alive to get them get them out of there. Hmm. Benadryl is probably just one that I always make sure it's around. I keep it in my truck anyway, just for you never know stings and snake bites or or whatever comes comes around. Well, let's let's uh, hit hit that really quick. Then, what are some snake bite do's and don'ts? I think a lot of people might have a fear, whether it's irrational or not, of you now their dog getting pegged by by a rattler or something every time they go out. Um, is there any specific field care that people should be aware of or tips or tricks? It really runs the gamut. So uh, I worked, uh, you know, down in, in Lewiston, Idaho, which is along the Snake River. So heavy rattlesnake population. We, we would see our share of snake bites in the summertime, for sure. That happened a lot less during the hunting season. I just feel like the snakes were still more or less out, but the, the, the bad encounters were lower. Um, just keep in mind that the real risk with a snake bite is how the, it's kind of a lot like the way COVID is. Like it's not the virus that's killing you. It's the, your, your immune system's response to the virus that gets so exuberant. And the dog and the snake bite is sort of the same way. Yeah, the toxin is pretty nasty. But what you, where you really get into trouble is when the dog develops some sort of anaphylaxis to the toxin or the saliva or some other whatever oral bacteria from the – we don't know. But they, they develop a very severe – immune response to something related to the bite. And then that runs the gamut dog to dog and, and bite to bite really, and snake to snake for that matter. You know, so there's a lot of factors at play. I think if you want to be prepared, I think having Benadryl on hand is, is, can be helpful. Although some people argue the, the fact that, you know, it's, that's a different type of reaction. I still feel like it helps and it, you're just trying to buy yourself some time or ward off a major reaction. Hmm. Um, don't, there's like the, I think it's been pretty well dispelled, but it still persists the whole like sucking out the, the venom. Like, I don't know why that, but yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't really it's do it's anything. It's the city slickers effect. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's sounds, it sounds really, really cool. And yeah, if you could save your dog by sucking out the venom, I mean, you would walk around with your chest stuck out for, for years after that. Yeah. So we all want that to happen for us, but it's, I don't think it's practical. Um, and then there's, you know, some people say like do a tourniquet to slow down the, the blood flow. I mean, I, I think that's kind of treading on, maybe you don't know what you're doing there. You don't want to cause any extra problems. I'd say stabilize, get them out, have them seen regardless of how severe it seems because have them seen by a vet, regardless of how severe the condition seems, because that can deteriorate pretty rapidly. Again, you're, when you're dealing with the immune system, most of that stuff is going to be immediate. So you're going to know, um, but it can come on in delayed manner too. What about vaccinating your dog against the, the Western rattlesnake? Is that a, a a viable option for folks? 
we did a lot in Lewiston, and that was sort of the protocol at that practice. It's a, it's a multivalent uh, venom type, um, multivalent meaning like different strains of, of uh, or different, I think even different species of, of rattler inside the vaccine. I think the research is, to be honest with you, pretty puny. Um, mm. Most of it, even though there is there are papers associated with its efficacy, I think most of it's based anecdotally with, within the region. I had I, I did an article for Meat Eater on this very topic, and you you can Google my name and Rattlesnake and Meat Eater, and probably it'll pop up there. They're pretty good with their search engine optimization. Um, I had colleagues that worked on it in Arizona, and they were like, "We never do it. We have tons of bites. It only makes things worse when they get bit. It's like priming the immune system for a reaction." Then huh. I had colleague colleagues over in Rapids in, in Rapids, South Dakota, Rapid City. And she's like, we always do it because it probably, it, you know, this isn't going to hurt anything, but it may, it seems like it helps when we do get a bite encounter. So I'm like, I don't know if that's like region to region, snake to snake, dog to dog. I mean, I don't know, but mm-hmm. we did it in Lewiston. I feel like when we had a strike, dogs typically did a little better with it. But again, that's, I wouldn't hang my head on that, that, that uh, mm-hmm. report, you know. But the research is just not there. I mean, I think either way, like it's just there's not enough dogs there. There's not a, you, you can't you can't recreate a, a bite in a laboratory to see how well your you know your your vaccine works. That makes sense to me. I'm not saying they're doing a bad job and not researching or trying to hide something. I just think practically it's something you really can't prove either way. So yeah, I think if it's available, you could give it a shot. It's up to you. Your vet may talk you out of it, or they probably talk you out of it by not not carrying the vaccine in general if they're they're opposed to it. Well, gentlemen, before I get into the bonus questions, um, is there anything that either of you hear uh, anecdotally quite a bit that you'd like to address, or any questions that you're posed with that we didn't bring up here today? You know. I saw a neat, uh, uh, interesting piece, you know, and I'll transition it from rattlesnakes. I don't know. Um, there's a guy, John Wright. Uh, I believe John takes some photos for you guys, the art of bird dogs. He's, he's a former, uh, I, I think he's had a national champion uh, Springer. Anyway, I know he's a real good dog guy from Montana and an amazing photographer now. And he wrote a good piece on social media yesterday and it equated snake bites to, um, grass ons and cheat prop cheat grass problems in the western u.s and kind of saying you know uh we spend so much time worried about snake bites and yet you know there's really very the number of people that had issues with dogs with snake bite is pretty small and then you compare the amount of uh issues and concerns with foreign um, mean seeds or cheat grass it's it's actually a much bigger deal so i think that's one piece that maybe to to caution if there's one simple thing that you can do to help protect your dog if you're hunting in the western United States um, in the fall is know what cheatgrass is, understand it, check your dog when you're done hunting. And, and there's mean seeds all over the place, you know, not just western U.S. and cheatgrass. So um, I think that that tailgate check that you do at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're done, you get back to the truck, you put your dog up there and go over it head to toe, um, checking the ears, checking between the toes, all that may be the best piece of medical advice that I think could be given today almost. You know, it's just really important to check those dogs out because you can solve it 90% of the time right there. If it's gone in the ear and the nose, you can take it to a vet and they can get a scope on it generally um, and see. Um, and then there's nothing. But if you ignore that and it travels and you have a, a mean seed infection, it can be um, 
a very costly, uh, b life threatening, and uh, just a bad deal. So that's a uh, one thing I'd like to tell people to take away from this. Yeah, I think a tailgate check just for screening for that kind of stuff is a really great idea across the board. You know, I talked about working down in Lewiston, Idaho, uh, and the rattlesnake vaccine. That you know, we we did that was was part of our practice what what kept the lights on in the summer was digging cheatgrass out of out of wounds where it had migrated in the skin i mean that was the bread and butter of what we did in, in every in every breed of dog and some cats too really throughout the whole summer so it's it's a huge it's a huge issue i'm not trying to to overstate it a lot of you midwesterners may not encounter it unless you come come out west to, to hunt uh but it's it's something that it, Definitely is. I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent preventable, but with especially if you've got a dog that's got any kind of feathering or or wiry coat, you need to, even well even my short hair from time to time. I'll find them between the toes before they get embedded. You need to kind of just just give them a once over between the feet. It's it's good conditioning to find other stuff that's wrong with them too. Be surprised how many cuts and scrapes you'll come across doing that that they never even gave you an indication that they were um, you know th there. You basically gave me a, a, a blank slate to talk about whatever soapbox I wanted to stand on. And I, I got overwhelmed thinking about all of them and I couldn't couldn't choose one. So I wanted to kind of tie it back into Purina if I had if I had to if I had to choose one in the, of that group. So um, I, I there are so many um, there's the concept that that somehow veterinarians are like in the pocket of like <laughs> big pet food, whatever, whatever that is. And that we all conspired with agribusiness to make these like uh, these products that really just cheat dogs out of like good nutrition for the sake of profit. Okay. I think that's, if, if that sounds foreign to you, then you just ask someone else that has a dog within three dogs, dog owners, you'll find someone that probably has that opinion somewhere. And um, I, I really feel like they couldn't be farther from the truth, especially with these companies that do so much quality research, looking at the ingredients they put in there. Everything in those foods is there for a specific reason. And there's there's a there's a peer-reviewed paper to document why it's there. Um, I, I kind of beat my head against the wall with people that are looking very deep for essential oils or some kind of like exotic ingredient that really has no basis in scientific fact, maybe tangentially in human medicine or something like that, but they want to, to bring those in. And I really try my best to like be supportive of how we can work together to, to make, keep your pet healthy. Right. Um, but I just, I want to say there, there are companies out there that are really putting dogs first and the performance of those dogs and the health of those dogs. Purina is certainly one of those companies. Um, you know, it's kind of a what you see is what you get kind of place too. Like there's just the everyone there you work with from every level is like passionate about about making a good a good uh, healthy dog food. Um, and, I, and I like years ago when I when I they were always a sponsor of 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 Navda, and that's kind of where I got my first connection with them. I was like these guys not only do they you know, one of are not only are they passionate about pet food, they really try hard to uh, support the things that bird dog owners are passionate about. You know, so that was kind of a big, a big thing for me. But we, yeah, the, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm so overwhelmed with what, what I want to say about that. I'm going to kind of, kind of, kind of temper my my response. But that's that's a big one there too. So your vet is trying to help you. There are companies that are trying to really help your pet. We can all work together for the same common goal. Our hearts all in the same place is doing what's best for our animals. No, that that's a good point. I think we all have a, a buddy or two and. And the hunting group that thinks that they're outsmarting everybody else by kind of 
trying to do their their own research and, and finding different workarounds. So that's that's a good point. Yeah. Um, all right. So for the bonus questions. Let's let's start with Carl here. Carl, what's your favorite upland bird to hunt? That's easy. Pheasants. Uh, it's, that, that is easy. mind you, there's probably not a pheasant within, uh, 500 miles of my home and the ones that are there, you can't hunt hardly. There's not enough. Um, you got to go about a thousand miles to have decent pheasant hunting, but, um, there's no more fun upland bird to hunt than the pheasant in my mind. And I do a lot more quail hunting than I do pheasant hunting, but, um, I'd rather hunt pheasants. Seth, you got a rebuttal to that one? <laughs> no, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to turn down pheasants for sure. And I, I spent a lot of time chasing them, you know, across Washington state, Idaho and, and Montana every year. Um, I'd say though, the one that like is kind of near and dear to my heart, um, although it's definitely gaining popularity now, I'm trying to keep it under wraps, just chuck running. Um, the, <laughs> unless you live in Nevada, pretty much you've got the place to yourself if you want it with chucker hunting. And that's just sort of that solitude really endears me to the bird and they're just like running short hairs there there's no more perfect covey bird for a short hair than a you know just let them turn and burn and like oh look they're on point at 500 yards away and it's just like so awesome to you know to see that and watch them work and you know if you can handle if your body can handle the terrain and there's shortcuts even if you you know places you can go where even if your body can't handle it you can get into them um, but it's there's it, nothing better the views the ample public land it's just it's, it's great. I mean, for a, for an import, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. I think Bob, you're on you, something. You want to chime in <laughs> yeah. I, or do you want to keep your secrets? I, I'm trying to figure out how to uh, work my way into an invitation to go hunch um, chuckers with, with, <laughs> with Seth. I, I've got a couple of short airs that uh, have never experienced chucker country. And that would be a, um, that's something that's definitely on my list. Oh yeah. It's, it's an open invitation and, and I could, you know, this, like I said, there's really not a lot of uh, places that I'm concerned with getting stolen because sometimes they're just either by, by natural boundaries or too hard for most people to even put the effort into. And some places are kind of like, you know, low hanging fruit. And uh, you know, I might not share those spots with you. <laughs> Don't require a, a day's worth of energy to get up to the top, but yeah, you, you're welcome to come out. I think your dogs well, would love you for it. <laughs> I do worry about, I, you know, one of the questions you asked a little bit ago, Andrew, is uh, about a year and a half old short hair <laughs> who is uh, kind of fearless. And I, I think anybody that's had a short hair can identify with, with that life stage. And I remember Eski, my middle dog now, um, she was about a year and a half hunting in West Texas. And she went on point uh, covey a scaled quail that I could see and 20 feet beyond her was a cliff where I can't, couldn't see the rest. <laughs> and, uh, that scared the death, scared me to death. Um, and, and that's what I think about when I think about short hairs and chucker country yeah. pointing on a cliff, like, um, and I, and I've lost a dog through a really tragic, um, accident in in the grouse woods so um that does intimidate me about chucker hunting have you ever had anything that you know where or, or do, do dogs intuitively know not to jump off of that cliff seth yeah it's hard to know because mom was sort of raised on it but uh i i wouldn't say it's a given <laughs> especially in the heat of the moment and there have been lots of times that i have 
not taken shots or diverted by dogs away from an objective like that, that I thought, what's the, what's the payoff here? Like a, a one bird, like, you know, mm. <laughs> versus like having one, you know, careen off the side of a cliff. So you gotta be kind of smart about it. I, somewhere along the way, I developed this command, like, don't be stupid. And I don't, I don't even know what it means. So I don't know why I expect my dogs to know what it means. But basically I just would like say that around something really dangerous and they like kind of slow down and pause and look around and then go about their business. But I think that little, that moment there of just like getting their head right before they like decide to go, like go through the barbed wire, not like try to break down the fence as you like, you know, yeah. not break stride through it, that kind of stuff. So I just, that's one thing I use a lot out there just to kind of keep their, their head right before they get too wrapped up in the pursuit. Does that yeah, work I, in the clinic too? I, Don't be I stupid. I, yeah, yeah I, haven't, I haven't figured out a command for that yet. I'm still working on it this many years later. Yeah. You kind of get to know each individual dog too. Like yeah. Esky, when she went on point on those scale coil, I I pulled her off because she was evil can evil at that age and she would have went over that cliff. Um, I'm 100% certain of it. Trammel, my most senior dog now was always the smarter, more cerebral, methodic dog. She would she wouldn't have went over that cliff. She would have been rock solid, you know, steady to wing shot point, you know, release. Whereas Esky was like, oh my God, do you see how many birds there are in front of me? And she just would have, you know, they would have flushed, I would have shot, and then over she would have went. But mm -hmm. thankfully I didn't shoot. <laughs> well, Bob, you're, you're pulling on the thread. You're pulling on the thread of the uh, the last bonus question here, I, and we'll start with Carl again. What is or was your best bird dog, and why? Yeah, man, that's. I don't know that that's possible. I mean, I think that would be like asking somebody, you know, which kid is your favorite? You know, do you? I don't know how you. I think they all have something different they've offered, and maybe. Like I've got a painting of one right here um, above my desk. And um, he certainly was not by any stretch the best dog as far as competitive or whatever. But he is the one I think a lot of people could relate to that changed my life. You know, I had a job. I was working at the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. I had a career. I was going out every morning before work and at lunchtime and after work training this dog and got, you know, involved in the competitive field trial deal. And I quit. I quit a, a really good career and job and moved to California and went to work for a, a, a trainer, you know, cut my salary, like probably into a fourth of what it was, had my wife divorce me. I had all these things happen because of this dog sitting here, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> so um, not the best dog and, and maybe not the best story, but he changed my life. And so yeah, hmm. to me, he's kind of the one that is always right here above my desk. Grizz yeah. was his name, by the way, Grizz. So, after the Montana Grizzlies. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. My story is very similar in terms of the, the, the way the dog earned that, that title. I, um, that'd be my older short hair now river who's, who's 12 and a half. And, um, he was like my first real like pointing dog. That was like just mine, you know, that I kind of had this blank slate and tried out all the, you know, training techniques on and, and it's just something about, I wouldn't say he was the sole motivation for the decision to become a veterinarian, but he, um, there's something about my fascination with him and his instinct to point And, um, it just really like set a lot of things in motion that really ended up with where I'm at today in my career. Uh, and I, you know, I kind of, 
I'll, I'll like always find that charming about about him as a dog. Um, he's 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 just one of those dogs that just is a ha has a good personality and really happy. And the the family in general, you know, they, you know, love him. And um, I don't know, it's gonna be hard. To, it's gonna hard to see his passing for sure. But he taught me a lot about. Um, I, I feel like I learned a lot about bird hunting just by watching him hunt. We we learned a lot together, and that was a really a neat a neat relationship to to transpire. But um, yeah, I, I, uh, it's still like Carl said. It's kind of like picking a favorite child too. You know, <laughs> I feel a little guilty about about the others that not yeah. being mentioned. But yeah, for some reason, he'll be the one that if if there's a painting made, <laughs> he'll, he'll probably be in it. No, that's a that's a great answer uh, to to that question specifically, and and overall, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to uh, listen to the people out there on the internet and helping uh, answer questions that that they have. Um, Bob, I'll, I'll give you the reins back to your show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll echo thanks to uh, all of our social followers on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, for offering up so many questions for this particular episode. Uh, really appreciate the feedback and, and the listenership out there. Um, Dr. Bynum, thank you so much for your expertise. Uh, it was great to finally meet you in person. Well, sort of in person. I don't... I don't think. Um, uh, oh, maybe we met at Pheasant Fest a year ago, or two years ago. We we did. We? A, I wouldn't expect you to remember, but we we shook hands at the BHA Rendezvous in Boise the year before that. But yeah, you probably did that a oh, thousand times that day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we, we met there as well. But yeah, it was finally for our first real conversation beyond the pleasantries of, of hello, nice to meet you. Yeah, it was it was wonderful getting to know you better and yeah. hearing about your short airs and in hunting out west and, and carl great to to catch up with you um you know seth did a wonderful job talking about how much perina is dedicated to the health of our bird dogs and in he talked about um you know how full circle that is well that's full circle to the point of habitat too um you know when we talk about longtime national partners and corporate supporters of our organization and in all of the bird conservation groups, Rough Grouse Society and, and um, Ducks Unlimited, uh, and, and including Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. If you look for a logo, you'll find Perina's logo on all those websites because they're committed to, to the habitat that our bird dogs love to run. So Carl, thanks for spending your time today with us. Yeah, thanks, it's been, it's been great, I've enjoyed it. All right, folks, uh, thank you for listening to this uh, Ask the upper <laughs> easy for me to say thanks to listen for listening to this ask the experts episode of on the wing podcast with dr seth bynum and carl gunzer of perina i'm bob st pierre for andrew vavra saying always follow the dog something good will rise thanks folks <laughs>